Um, if you're visiting with us today, if you wouldn't mind filling out, whoops, wrong side, one of these, that would be a big help to us. We'd like to get to know you a little bit. There's also a spot on the back where you can kind of uh, tell us about um, what you've experienced today. We would love to hear your feedback too. Um, if you uh, haven't already and you have a smartphone, please take it out and check in. Uh, we participate with a, an organization called Reach. And every time we put a little hashtag, a specific hashtag, they give money to an organization. The one that we're working with is a, um, it's a Haitian group, again, um, this month, called Meals for Students. That's the hashtag, Meals for Students, when you check in. Um, and what it does is that it provides meals for students who are um, uh, going to, uh, to a particular school in Haiti. So we would love for you to check in and help us give them money. That would be great. Uh, last month, at least part of it, um, we donated, uh, I don't know what the final dollar total was, to um, the American Red Cross to um, help the flood victims in Louisiana. So it's a really great way for um, us as a church to engage with some of the things that are going on around the world <clears throat> that are already working so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are organizations on the ground doing uh, the things that, um, that we would like to participate in that we don't have to set up, and that's really good. So if you haven't checked in. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to think. I'm going to do some announcements at the end. Uh, from time to time, as a church, we have an opportunity to do something um, special. Uh, we have uh, the opportunity to uh, pray for people within our church. Um, this week, um, we found out that our, our own Andy... I'm going to lose it. Our own Andy Nightingale is being deployed to Afghanistan. On the one hand, I am so proud of him. You know? I am so proud of him. The other hand, I'm scared to death. Fortunately, we don't have to rely on ourselves. And we don't have to rely on something that's overseas that we know nothing about. We know the one who created all of creation, and we know the one who can protect in places that we can't. And so we're going to pray for Andy, and I've asked Scott and Susan and Jessica, if she wants to, to uh, stand here in, um, in Andy's place. And if you... <laughs> If you know and love Andy, I invite you to come and lay hands on um, so that they can um, just be his substitute. So, guys, why don't you come up right here? Yeah. Good. Come on around, lay on hands. Yeah. Lord Jesus, as a church body, we come before you with all humility and hope 
And uh, we pray for Andy Nightingale as he goes overseas to serve his country, his family, and his loved ones. We recognize right now that um, this is an opportunity for us to uh, offer our blessing on him, but to, to ask you, to beg you for your blessing on him and his unit and all who serve overseas. Lord, please protect him. I pray that your hand would be on top of him, around him, underneath him, that uh, no harm would come to him or his unit, that they would be able to perform their duties efficiently, effectively, with honor. Um, God, only you know what those circumstances hold. And we're going to trust you. We're going to trust you. And so we declare um, your divine sovereignty over all things and ask you to just protect. And Lord, for um, mom and dad and sister and uh, grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and everyone here at home, God, we ask you to uh, bring them comfort too, um, that they would uh, fully lean into you because the truth of the matter is, you're all they've got. And so we pray um, for them as well. This is a family affair, and we are part of this extended family too. And so as uh, your spirit leads us, we ask you to prompt us to pray for Andy and his unit too. That we would just, for whatever reason, would, would just lift him before you. And so we do that today. This is just the start. Please bring them home safely. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. 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 Thank you. Sometimes I'm strong, sometimes I'm not. <clears throat> As we get updates about Andy, we will certainly pass them on to you if we can, but please, uh, one of the things I need to make sure that I say is do not post anything on Facebook. Um, back in World War II, there used to be a phrase, loose lips sink ships. Same thing holds true today, only it more so because we have digital media like Facebook and whatnot. So um, please, um, as much as you might want to, uh, keep this one to yourself. And uh, yeah. I have an email list of people that told me to ask them what they thought about Andy. And if anybody's not on that email list and they would like to be, well, I know I'm happy to have you. Did y'all hear that? Yeah. There's an email list for updates about Andy. If you have let Susan know and you're already on that list, that's fine. But if you would like to be on that list, please let her know and she'll, she'll add you to it, okay? You can talk to her about it after, afterwards. Okay. I just feel like we, we need to pray again, all right? God, thanks for, um, for the new day and the opportunity to worship, to be here together as a church family, to love our other um, 
members of our, of our extended church family. And Lord, um, I'm so grateful for the worship that we had today. And that we're coming, trying to come back to the heart of worship. That we're, we're trying to, as a church, <clears throat> kind of strip away some of the other stuff. And, and to, to really focus on the things that matter. And that's about being disciples ourselves. To worship you. To, to, to grow and to, and to serve. And I'm so glad that um, we have a church that's beginning to do that. And the Lord help us to be the kind of church that you want us to be. And not just be disciples ourselves, but to make disciples of all nations. And thanks for um, meeting with us today. <clears throat> and I pray, Lord, that um, the meditations of my heart and the words that I speak today would bring honor and glory to you and that you would add your blessing to the reading and study of your word. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting something new... <laughs> is a bit of a paradox. And, and here's what I mean by that. On the one hand, when you start something new, it's exciting because it's new, right? On the other hand, because it's new, it's also difficult. Think about the things that, that you may have started in, in the past. Um, maybe, well, it's that time of year. Students are starting classes. It's a new school year. Or maybe you uh, made a new purchase and you're kind of wrestling with buyer's remorse, or maybe not. Or maybe um, you're starting a new job and there's a bunch of people you got to get to know and there's new procedures that you have to go through and it's new and it's exciting, but it's difficult. Or maybe you're starting a, a new organization like a business or a church. Or maybe you're starting a new hobby or learning a new skill or maybe you're in a new season of life. You know, baby coming into the world changes things. It's exciting and it's difficult. Or maybe you're sending your kids off to college and you, 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 you got to be with a spouse where you haven't, it hasn't been the two of you for a while. And it's like, okay, that's kind of exciting. And it also might be difficult, right? It's a new season of life. These things are, are both exciting and they're difficult at the same time. It really is a paradox. Now, there comes a point whenever you start something new that your progress stalls. Uh, we, go, we often call this the learning curve, right? The learning curve takes over and all of a sudden the excitement's wearing off and the difficulty is becoming more challenging. And so you feel like your progress stalls. Tell me I'm not the only one who's experienced this, right? Okay. And, and there's, there's this point, and, 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 and maybe the words are different for you, but for me, I'll, 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 I'll have that moment of reflection, and I'll sit back, and I'll go, what am I doing? <laughs> Why did I get started with this in the first place? Or, or did I miss something? You know, along the way, is there, it just, what, what, where's the disconnect for me? And what happens is, is when you start that thing that's new, that's exciting and challenging, and, the, and, and invariably the progress begins to stall, doubt enters, right? It's just, it's just something that happens to us. Now, let me hit the pause button for just a second. Because if you're an American living in suburban America, an American suburbanite, there's something else that also enters the picture. It's called shame. 
There's a researcher, her name is Brene Brown. Come on the next slide. There she is, right there. And Brene Brown has done quite a bit of, of work on, on shame, especially among American suburbanites. And she says that shame whispers two things. First of all, it whispers, you're not good enough. Or a variation, you're not good enough, you're not talented enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, you're not experienced enough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you may have some doubts. Progress has stalled. You're asking questions, doubts, and then shame whispers in your ear. You're not good enough. And if, and if maybe you are good enough, maybe you do have the experience, maybe you do have the talent, maybe you do have the looks, whatever it happens to be, then shame whispers another, another little earworm. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Add that to the doubt you're already feeling, and the first thing you want to do is just go, ah, I'm not so sure I'm excited about things that are new. By the way, let me just give you a freebie here. It's because of these two questions, it's because of this issue of shame that is so prevalent in American society. It's because of that that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we must be encouraging to other people. Why? Because everybody you meet, everybody you meet, needs someone to balance out the negative words that they hear in their brain constantly. That goes for the cashier at Walmart, the waiter or waitress who isn't giving you the best service in the world goes for teachers, and it goes for police officers, and it goes for, and the list goes on and on. Everybody you encounter is most likely dealing with these negative tapes going over and over in the brain. We need more encouragers because of that. So progress stalls when you start something new, and if nobody told you, I want you to hear this today. And the doubt enters, I want you to hear this today. That's normal. It's natural. It's part of the nature of being human because we have the learning curve, right? There's a business writer, his name is Seth Godin, and he explains it this way. I really like it. Next slide. He does this little chart. He calls it the dip. And so if you look on the screen here, you can see that on the vertical axis, it's results or rewards. And on the horizontal axis, it's effort or time. When you start something new, it's exciting and you get lots of reward for it because it's, it's new and exciting. And then all of a sudden, the learning curve takes over and it becomes more difficult and all of a sudden, it's a dip. And this is a universal phenomenon. There's nobody I know that hasn't experienced this at some level. And if you think about it, you've experienced this too. Anytime you've started something new. But there's a problem. There's a problem here, or maybe I should say a complication. <clears throat> the complication is when the project or the new thing is spiritual in nature. When it's church-related, those are the kinds of things. Maybe it's a new relationship with, with some Christians. Maybe it's the start of a new church, or maybe you're starting to attend a new church and you're getting to know that church culture. Maybe it's when you're volunteering, or 
anytime that you sense that God is moving you in a direction, it complicates things. Why? Because if God's involved, we shouldn't have a dip, right? I mean, God smooths that out, right? God takes care of that. That's always going to be exciting, and I'm going to be able to meet every single challenge that comes my way with, with great victory and fanfare, and all is going to be well. And some of you are laughing, and I don't understand why. And somehow we get it into our minds that if God's a part of it and it's not immediate success and it's not the success that's in my head, then certainly God is not part of this. Hmm? We've all been there. We all understand there's this idea of the dip because we've experienced it. But when it comes to church world, when it comes to God, when it comes to following Jesus, that shouldn't be the case. <laughs> well, <laughs> Got news for you. <laughs> That's not true. The dip is a universal phenomenon. And I'm going to give you a little foreshadowing. God still works despite that. And I'm very thankful for that. Let me see if I can illustrate. I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. See if I can pull out a old chestnut of a story here to help. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 5. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's right in the beginning of, of the Bible. You open it up, you'll get Genesis. The very next one is Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus 5. So let me give you just a little bit of uh, context while you're turning there or while you're plugging the numbers in. <clears throat> it's a very familiar uh, story, especially around Easter time. Uh, and I'm not sure why, but the major networks always play um, the Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston, Yul Brenner, let my people go, right? And I never understood that because the Ten Commandments really doesn't have a whole lot to do with Easter, but it's like, well, you know, it's the best sort of Bible movie we can play, so we'll do that one. But anyway, this, this story that we're going to talk about really comes, um, uh, the, 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 the story out of the Bible starts in Exodus chapter 5. Um, maybe a little bit before then. Um, so hopefully this will be familiar to you. So I want to highlight a couple of key passages in this story, but to bring you up to speed in the storyline, Israel as a nation is enslaved in Egypt. And they have been that way for quite some time. And God hears their cries of enslavement. He went to Pharaoh and said... <laughs> Is that Yul Brenner? Because that sounds like Yul Brenner to me. So, anyway. Um, so, Israel is enslaved in Egypt, <clears throat> and God hears their cries, and so he picks a man named Moses. And Moses is going to go and speak to Pharaoh. Now, remember, Moses is called in very dramatic fashion. In fact, I really would like a burning bush to tell me what to do. How about you? Yes? Yeah? That's a little scary. But at least you would know. You know, there's none of this kind of, well, I don't know, maybe it was God, maybe it wasn't. No, the bush is on fire and not burning up. Pretty clear, right? That would be great to have that kind of clarity in, in God's calling. <clears throat> 
so Moses is called to go and talk to these people. <clears throat> and so we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 5, and uh, I'm going to highlight a couple of verses only here, okay? So let's read uh, Exodus chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Ready? Afterward, that's after, you know, God has called Moses and sent him to talk to Pharaoh. Moses and his brother Aaron did what they were told to do. They went to Pharaoh, and they said, pay attention to this, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Okay, stop right there. So, God says, go to Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go so that they can go have a festival to me in the desert, in the wilderness. So, Moses and Aaron, they go and they do what they were asked to do. And notice the words that they use. This is very important. They use a very formal title, the Lord, the God of Israel. There are two Hebrew terms here that are very important. The first one is Yahweh. And that's the one we translate here as the Lord, Yahweh. <clears throat> the second one is Elohim. It means God. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord, the God of Israel. This is a very formal way of addressing God. And so, you know, they're in a king's chamber. They stand before <clears throat> Pharaoh, who's the ruler of this basically superpower in, in the Mediterranean world at the time. And they use the term, the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay? Well, this is important. Verse 2. <clears throat> Pharaoh said, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now, he's basically said the same thing twice, right? Pay attention to that. This is going to be very important as we go on, right? Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now, here's the thing that you have to understand. If we don't understand the context here, the rest of the story doesn't make as much sense. So bear with me here. In ancient Israel, or sorry, in ancient Egypt, you have to know that Pharaoh was divine, considered divine. He was a god. It wasn't that he was just king. It wasn't that, that the gods had favored him and said, you're the king. No, Pharaoh was considered a deity himself. Okay? So, <clears throat> imagine you're the king. You think you're a god. And someone walks into your throne room and says, the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go. Now, in my head, here's what happened. We're in the throne room. Moses, Aaron, Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. And Pharaoh stops. And, 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 and for me, it's like when you're in school and the teacher has the pull-down thing and it's a big map of the world. You know what I'm talking about? You, you've had these, right? Okay, so, so here's, here's Pharaoh. He goes up and he pulls down this, this kind of map of all of the gods of Egypt. And he's looking at it, and he's going, okay, Ra, and there's Set, there's Isis, Osiris, yep, yeah, this Yahweh, I don't know him. He, he's not on the list. Oh, and by the way, there's me, in the, kind of in the family tree, I'm down here, but I'm a deity too, and I don't know that name, he's not related to me, so why on earth would I pay attention to him? Do you see the problem here? Right? I don't know this God. 
Why should I obey him? He is not part of the pantheon. By the way, here's a, here's a picture of some of them. I don't remember who's who. But you've got these pharaohs and gods and whatnot. Yeah, I don't see Yahweh on my list. Apparently this is the list, right? Pulls it down. I don't, I don't see that. It's not on my chart. I don't know the Lord. Why would I obey him? He's not on the list. He's not on the approved list. So Pharaoh makes a response. And if, you, if you're familiar with the story, you know what it is. He says, look, okay, you've got these Hebrew people, these Israelite people, and why are they listening to this guy Moses and Aaron? Uh, apparently, they don't have enough to do. Now, as an enslaved people, their job was to make bricks because there was this massive expansion program going on in Egypt at the time. They were building cities. In fact, um, they've come across some of the cities that were probably made by Hebrew slaves. And let me give you a little understanding of brick making 101. There's three components you need basically to make brick. You need clay, some kind of dirt, you need water, and you have to have some kind of aggregate to keep it together, which in this case was straw, right? So here's what Pharaoh does. He says, well, if they've got so much time on their hands to listen to these guys, tell them that they need to continue to make the same number of bricks, but now they need to go find their own straw. So what did, what did Pharaoh do? He changed the supply chain. Supply chain, excuse me. He changed the supply line. Now, if you've worked in manufacturing, this is a big deal <laughs> to do. Anytime you change the supply line, it has massive consequences. In depending on what the, 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 the manufacturing process is, it can dramatically change the time it takes to actually produce whatever it is that you're going to produce. As you can imagine now, you have people who were making bricks, they need to stop making bricks, and they need to go find straw so they can put it in the bricks. So you don't have as much manpower doing the same thing, and oh, by the way, the quote is still the same. So, Israelite people begin to appeal to their masters. Why, 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 why are we doing this? And they're like, hey, you need to talk to the head man. So they do. They go and they talk to Pharaoh and they say, why are we, you know, well, he says, well, apparently you've got enough time because you're listening to Moses and Aaron. And so you have these Israelite slaves, kind of the, the, the you know, foreman of it, I guess is what I would call it. And they walk out of the meeting with Pharaoh and who do they see? Moses and Aaron. Can you imagine how that conversation went? Yeah, thanks a lot. Appreciate that. In as sarcastic as a tone as possible. What'd you do that for? Now, let me pick up the passage again. Let's look in verse 22. Condition is worse. Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? It's the dip. It was exciting because we're going we're gonna to go to Pharaoh and we we're going to tell them in the name of the Lord that he's supposed to let, let, let the Israelite people go. But now the challenge is greater. He's like, I don't know him. And by the way, you all need to work harder. 
things got worse. It's the dip. And what's more, look in verse 23. Here's what it says. Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Can you hear the desperation in his voice? Can you hear the fear, the doubt, the worry? It's all there. It's the dip bottoming out right there. I'm supposed to do this thing. I did what you told me to do. And it's almost like you hear the questions going, okay, did I miss something here? Because I, you know, it's supposed to be ABC and here it is and this is not occurring. Did, did, did I misunderstand you? What am I doing here? And I suppose too, there's a part of Moses, and I'm reading into it, but I know what I would feel like. Is this worth it? Is it worth it to do this? It's the dip. The greatest challenge that we have whenever we start something new is that there is um, a relationship between our expectations and our experience. Those two things are connected. Um, <clears throat> tell you a quick story. Some of you have heard me talk about this. My, my daughter Elizabeth, who's sitting over there, uh, has always had a bit of an imagination. And uh, in fact, when she was younger, we had to be very careful as to how we, we surprised her. Because if we told her about a surprise um, too much in advance, um, like, hey, we're going to do this thing, and it's going to be a surprise, she would get it so worked up in her mind that her expectation was sky high in the experience never matched what was in her fertile imagination. Ever. And then at eight years old, we went to Walt Disney World. It was awesome. The child did not speak for almost four hours. Because it was the first time in her life that the experience actually exceeded the expectation. And maybe you've got something like that too, where you know you just you were hoping that something was gonna be this way. New restaurants are notorious for this. Yeah, somebody was but it was awesome. The food was great, and then you get there and go, eh, eh, it's all right. The biggest challenge that we have is managing the connection between expectation and what the experience actually is. Now, there are four possible, four possible uh, reactions to the disconnect between expectation and experience. There's four possible. The first one is this, and it's the easiest one. It's to complain. Yeah. Okay, that, that was not what I expected at all. And we're, we're, you know what? When there's the disconnect between those two things, I guarantee you that's the first thing that'll come out of our mouth. There'll be some kind of complaint against it. And I understand why, but it's true. Here's the second one. Second one is we can force our expectations. We can say, well, doggone it, it's supposed to be this way, and we can push what it is that we want on top of it. And yeah, how does that work out? Uh, it may. But there's going to be damage in the process. Here's a third reaction. We can bail on the experience. That's the easiest ones for, for Americans to do. 
It's like, okay, it's not going to match my expectations, so you know what? I'm just not going to worry about it anymore. I don't, I'm going to disengage from that. This is the reason why businesses lose customers. It's why people leave churches. It's why you know, we walk out of restaurants. We were in, uh, I'm trying to remember, we were, I think we were in Little Rock, and uh, we had heard about a pizza place. We went to the pizza place, and uh, we waited some 20 minutes for somebody to come take our order, and we just ended up walking out. The expectation and the experience did not match, so the easiest thing to do was to go find a different pizza place because there was others in, in town. Consumerist, consumeristic society, this is the easiest one to do. Now, there is a fourth one, and I'm going to tell you right up front, you're not going to like it because it's the hardest and it's the most uncomfortable, but there is another way to respond or react, or I should say respond, to <clears throat> a disconnect between expectation and experience. Here it is. You can wait on God. I really hate that one. But out of, the, out of the four, it's the one that I think is the wisest to do. Wait on God. Yay, yay, wait. How many of you are patient? Be honest now, you in church. Yeah. Patience is not something that we're strong in, but sometimes we need to wait on God. Let's keep reading the story and see if we can, if we can decipher some things here. Look at chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Okay? Moses has just made his complaint. Now, please understand, God does not chastise Moses for the complaint. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Now, remember, Pharaoh said twice, I do not know the Lord. And here, God says, because of my mighty hand, twice. We must understand what's happening here. It is crucial to the entire story. When you see pictures of Pharaoh as a conqueror, he is often depicted with an outstretched hand. Here's a picture. This is Pharaoh. And one hand that is outstretched, he's got the hair of somebody that he's conquering. And the other outstretched hand, he's got a club. By the way, this is one of the first depictions of Pharaoh, probably from the first dynasty. And you can see it there with an outstretched hand. It's a mighty hand. It's a conquering hand. He's often depicted this way with an outstretched hand. In fact, there's a, there's a psalm. You may have heard it. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. The poet was talking about this moment in history. God saying, now you will see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. With my mighty hand, he is going to set the people free. With my mighty hand, he's not going to be able to, to get you out fast enough. He's going to drive you out. You see that? You see... The mistake that we make is when we read this story and we think it's about Israel being free. That's only part of it. There is a much bigger story being written here. 
It is a theological story. Yeah, Pharaoh, I don't show up on your chart of gods, but guess what? This is a challenge to the worldview. It is crucial that we understand this. Now, you know the rest of the story. God visits plagues on the people of Egypt in order to get them. By the way, if you do a little digging, every single one of those plagues is a direct assault on one of the gods in the Egyptian pantheon. Every single one of them. The battle here is not over the freedom of Israel. That's the result. The battle here is the worldview of Yahweh versus everybody else. Do you see that? It's a huge story. If you like a kind of a more sports-oriented terms, God is throwing down here. He's throwing down. He's trash-talking a little bit. He has issued a challenge to the God's of Egypt, and Pharaoh, of course, is the most visible of them. He is the one that everyone sees, and so the challenge is really directed at him and his divinity. So Pharaoh will let them go, and he will drive them out. Can't get them out fast enough. So here's the point. <clears throat> when it comes to following God, when things aren't going as expected, when the dip comes, when things are not quite what you expected, when there's a disconnect between expectation and the actual experience. Huh. You got to ask yourselves a couple of questions. Here's the first one. Were you called to this? Did, did God call you to this thing that you were, you were doing? And, and if he did, then the next question I think is pretty obvious. Is God backing out on you? Does that the character of God to bring you to a certain point just to kind of leave you there? Or is maybe this story just a little bit bigger than what you're seeing right now? So here's the thing. Here's the thing I want you to remember. If you remember nothing else from today, remember this. If you're called, you're covered. If you're called by God, then you're covered. It may not be exactly what's, what's in your head, that picture that you have in your head. Even if you don't fully get it, when you don't understand why this piece and this piece, and it's because you don't see the bigger storyline. Because we're human. But if you're called, you're covered. And by the way, by the way, when shame begins to whisper in your ear and say things like, you're not good enough, you can look shame square in the face and go, nope, but God is. And when shame says, who do you think you are? I'm just called. And because I'm called, I'm covered. And I don't have to know the very next step. I'm just going to keep doing what God's called me to do, and I'm going to trust him for whatever that result is. Now, please understand, I know it's easier said than done, but if you wait on the Lord long enough, he's going to work those purposes out, and you will eventually be able to see it. Did Moses get to see the mighty hand of God move? Oh, yes. And I have to believe that those of us in the 21st century 
can see the exact same thing.